Well, hey, Heritage. I want to welcome everyone across our network to week three of Walking with Giants. We took a break last week to celebrate a milestone in the life of our church, and this week we're stepping back into exploring the lives of a few men and women who walked by faith as giants of the faith. We're looking at what they did and how they did it so we too can live by faith. And it was early on in the first part of that conversation, we looked at the biblical definition of faith that's found in Hebrews chapter 11. It says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, that seems simple enough and easy enough, but it comes with complexity because we're not always sure. I mean, we're sure about some things. We're, we're sure that today is Sunday, and, and we're sure that well, what we did this morning, and, and, and we're sure of where we're at, physically where we're at. Hopefully, you know where you're at right now. <laughs> but when it comes to things not yet seen, things unseen, even spiritual things, we're not always quite as sure. Which is why faith then becomes this hybrid of seen and unseen, physical and spiritual, what is and what is not yet. There's a complexity to it because we're not always sure of what comes next. You know, I found this game. It's a game called Picture Sequencing, and maybe you have it or have seen it, but it's a kid's game designed to help kids develop logical progression, sequencing. And so you can see on the box cover that there's a cat blowing up a balloon, and as it continues to blow up the balloon, it pops. Now, it's not logical for a cat to blow up a balloon. I recognize that. But it is logical in the sequence of what happens. And it's easy and simple in a game, but it's not as easy in life. It's, it's, the unseen is not always predictable. Let me show you an example. Here's a picture of a bear that had climbed a tree and was looking at a bird feeder, figuring out how to eat what's inside the bird feeder. Now, what do you think happens next? He's going to go for it, right? Well, did you picture him going for it this way? <laughs> Climbing out across the, with using his mouth to get to the bird feeder. And what do you think is going to happen next? Going to break and fall? Maybe that's what you think, but that's not what happens. He actually gets to the bird feeder and he eats everything inside of it. The unseen is not always predictable. Here's another example. Here's a gentleman who's finishing a long-distance race. He's about to cross the finish line. No one's around him. What do you think is going to happen next? Well, you, you would predict and think he's going to finish, but actually he slips and he falls. And he ends up down and he stays down, but fortunately his feet are under, so he's still finished. We, when it comes to the unpredictable, the things not yet seen, they're not... We don't always know. We can't always tell. We can't always be sure. One last example. Here's a picture of, a, of just a dog biting the tail of another dog. Now, what do you think is going to happen? Are you going to turn around and bite that dog? Going to run away yelping? Like one of those. That makes sense. That's not what happens. Take a look at what happens. He gets some air. Woo! Yowzer! He is in the air. Look, when it comes to the unseen, it's, it's not always as predictable or easy to predict what's going to happen. But, but again, that's, that's where faith comes in. Faith changes that. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. And it's the thing that the ancients were commended for. It's the thing these giants of the faith were commended for. They navigated the seen and unseen realities, the what is and what is not yet. And in faith, it, it's more than just predicting. It's believing. Faith is believing. Because here's a reality, if you're tracking your note guide, first fill in, that it is by faith that we believe. It's by faith that we believe, head and heart. But it's through faith that we live. It's through faith that we put it into practice. See, faith is head and heart where we believe. But, but through faith we live. Therefore, there are hands and feet. There's demonstration. And a faith not lived in the physical world is not real faith at all. 
James, the brother of Jesus, called that dead faith. There should be some expression, some application, some action that comes out of our faith to make it real. And when we looked at Enoch in this Walking with Giants series, we, we, we saw in Scripture in verse 6 of chapter 11 in Hebrews that, that it is impossible to please God without faith. But it's possible to please God with faith. And so we started to look at what that meant. We can please God by faith. How does that actually work? And so we, we looked at how that plays out. And we saw that it first starts by faith choosing to agree with God. When we agree with God, then we can walk with God. If we don't agree with God, then we cannot walk with him. But when we agree, we can walk. And when we walk, then we begin to understand what love is. We begin to know what love is when loving him and loving others, even loving ourselves. And, and, and then that love leads to action. And it is that action that leads to a faith that pleases God. This is a very helpful cycle to understand how we live a faith that pleases God. It starts with agreeing, and it leads ultimately to acting as we walk in love with him. Now, there's lots of people in Scripture that live this out. And actually, the next person on the list in Hebrews chapter 11 is Noah, and he lived this cycle. In fact, if we took a moment to look at two spots in Genesis that talks about Noah's life, he's described as a person who did everything that God commanded him. He, he did all that the Lord commanded. He lived the cycle. He agreed with God, walked with God, out of love for God, acted in a way that led to demonstrating his faith in tangible expressions. But I want to take a look because he didn't just do that in one moment. He did it in multiple moments, and the biggest moment is when he built the ark. But let's take a look at what it says in our anchor passage in Hebrews 11, verse 7. This is what it says about Noah. Next person in the list. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now, this is what it says about Noah here, and there's more to find in another part of Scripture we'll get to in a moment, but many of us are familiar with Noah, at least parts of his story. I mean, we, we've read the kids' books, we followed the story, maybe even when we had our children, we made our baby room Noah-themed. But Noah's life actually gives us an example of how we live in the complexity of the seen and unseen. Because he, he lived out his faith in obedience. And that's incredibly important because faith is lived out in obedience. It's made real in obedience. It's, it's demonstrated, it's proved in obedience. It's only made real in obedience. And Noah lived that out in his life because faith and obedience are connected. They're not separate. They're inherently linked. And Noah's strength, what, what saved he and his family was that he lived his faith in obedience. Yet most of the time when people look at Noah and they study what, he did, what, what happened in Scripture, they look at what, through like this lens of what he did. But I want to look today at what he chose. Look through the lens of what he chose. Because Noah's faith was great, not because he built an ark. Noah's faith was great because he believed God. That's what made his faith great. And so I want to look at what he chose or what he chose between. He chose between comfort and kingdom. He chose between what was safe but actually living out his purpose as someone who was sent. And so I want to jump to Genesis chapter 6. If you've got your Bible, you can go there. You can just look at the screen or in your note guide. Here's what we find about Noah. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. This was a really dark period in humanity. It was tragic and heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to God's heart. And so the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. 
So he said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But then it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So here's the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Just like Enoch, he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Sham, Ham, and Jepheth. Okay, so that's, that's the account of Noah. That's his, that's his he and his family. So he had three sons. He had Sham, Ham, and Jepheth. We also know he had a wife. We, everybody knows her name was Joan, right? Joan of Arc. Okay, no, we don't really know her name. That's not true. Don't write that down. Okay, that's not true. We don't know her name. But what we do know about Noah is that he was righteous and he was blameless. And, and, and he walked faithfully with God. He agreed with God, walked with God, loved and acted out of that. And that led to him experiencing what he did in the way that he did. Where he had a glimpse into the unseen, but he still had to live by faith in obedience. Amidst a complexity where where Noah saw the depravity and the corruption of his world. Yet he decided to do a couple things. One, he decided not to despair. Second, he decided not to join in. Those are important decisions. Because it positioned him to make the third decision, and that was to believe and obey God. Now that, ha that had to have some challenges around it. It wasn't inherently easy to do that. It's not a stretch to begin to imagine that that when he steps into obedience and he starts to build this ark and he's, he's investing everything he has, all of his financial resources, his social capital, relational capital, all been getting just crushed in this complexity of this huge bold move, which again, bold moves always face opposition. It's, it's not a stretch to imagine ridicule and mocking and condemnation about what he was doing in the space of obedience. But, but doing what's right isn't always understood by people around us. People often condemn what they don't understand. Yet, yet we have a choice to either agree with God and walk with him and live out of love in action, or we drift. And we end up in a totally different place, not walking as a giant of faith. But Noah did. He chose to agree, he chose to walk, he chose to love, and he chose to act. Now, you know the rest of the story, right? He builds the ark, the rain comes, the flood comes, and God starts over with humanity and over with the creatures who walk the ground with the animals that were on the ark. Now that's the rest of the story, and there's a number of things that we can learn out of the story of Noah. But one of the biggest takeaways for me about understanding Noah's life and giants of the faith is that, that those giants of the faith do anything and everything God asks. Anything and everything God asks. That, that's the demonstration of faith. Noah's job was to build, and so he did that. But there's a complexity when we're trying to do everything and anything God asks when you bump into the unseen, the, the what is not yet, the thing that's next. And there's a number of reasons for that, but one of the most clear reasons why there is complexity around that not yet and unseen reality is found in the book of Ephesians. And this is not in your note guide, it's just going to be up here on the screen, but I want to show you a section of scripture that's written by a guy named by the name of Paul, who at one point was so far outside the will of God, not walking with God. He was so out, far outside, he was killing Christians in the name of God until he encountered Jesus and then everything changed. And later in his journey, he would write these words in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. In his mighty what? In his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Those, that would be the seen and unseen realities of how the enemy works. 
He continues on to say, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, if you have never read that before or heard that before, it can feel a little ominous. <laughs> Talking about armor and schemes and battles and all that jazz. But here's the simple reality is that you and I live in two worlds. There's a physical world and there's a spiritual world. The trouble comes when we label the physical world as real at the expense of understanding how real the spiritual world is. Because they are both very real, but they're very different. And if we don't understand that there is both a physical and spiritual, there is a seen and an unseen, we are actually more likely to stumble in the unseen and, and, and actually fall into some traps that get set by that one who's setting schemes. The, we know him by several names, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, but, but he is actively seeking to stop the people of God from doing what God wants them to do. He's seeking to de derail us from walking and agreeing with God. And he does it not because he cares about us and cares about our success or failure. He hates God and he wants to hurt the heart of God and he seeks to do that through us. And the reality is we live in a world that is both physical and spiritual. We live in both of those dynamics and far too many people over or excuse me underestimate the enemy's schemes while overestimating their own ability to stand in it. Because to be quite honest, the only way we stand in those schemes and after everything to stand is in the name of Jesus and in the, his mighty power. And it's by faith that we're able to do that. I had a, I'll be honest with you, I had a much different intent for our time in the word today. But a few days ago, the Lord started to continue to impress on me the need to pause and share what I see happening in the journey of our church in the area of the seen and unseen, in the what is and what is not yet. And I want to just take a few moments to do that. I'm going to pause the Noah conversation. I will get back to it at the end. And those of you who may want to make sure every fill-in is done, I'll give those to you so we don't miss any of them. But I want to pause and I want to talk about this concept and what I see happening within our church family. And, and it's something we've talked about before. I even talked about it this week at the Scoop Night. But it's too important not to understand the significance and too important not to understand how, how the things unseen function. Because we need to understand how the physical and the spiritual world intersect. So let me do this first, and I want to frame two things before I get into this. First of all, I just want to invite you to look to the left and look to the right. Bettendorf, get in on this. Look around the room for a moment. Listen, the people you see, no one you see is your enemy. Not even if you can see the person who has done the worst, most painful, unfair thing to you. They are not your enemy. Paul identifies the enemy as Satan, as the devil. So the people we can see around here, they are not our enemy. The enemy is the one who is the deceiver. He's the one who tries to trip us up, trick us, and get us to trade the truth for a lie. He is known as the father of lies. And we don't understand how he works. We're more vulnerable to his tactics. Think about it this way. Who here has ever played chess or checkers? Raise your hand if you've ever played chess or checkers. Okay, good. Listen, how helpful would it be to know your opponent's move before they make the move? That'd be pretty helpful, wouldn't it? If you knew their move before they did it, or even if you understood their move after the fact of why they did it, that's really incredible and that's helpful. Any, any sporting thing, if you have somebody's playbook, that would be really helpful. Well, I want to spend a few moments talking about the enemy's playbook so that you understand and so that you can stand against his, his schemes and after everything still stand. So if you want to take some notes, you can put this in the blank part of your note guide, but just hang with me as we talk through something that is a, a bit of a review for some of you, but new for others of you. See, God created us, and he created us with an identity and with a purpose. 
Our identity is who we are. Our purpose is what we do. And what, who we are defines what we do, not what we do defining who we are. Our identity is in Jesus. Now, we're created for that, and we're created to live in the context of community. That community is relationship with God. It's relationship with each other. It's living in proximity. We're not made to do life alone. Because in the context of community, we get two things. We get truth and we experience love. It's in the context of community that truth and love calibrate in our lives so that we are clear on who we are and what we do. This is how God designed us to function. The problem is the enemy does not work with that. The enemy does not work with truth. He actually works with the opposite of truth. And what he seeks to do is to challenge our identity through a half-truth or a flat-out lie. When he can challenge our identity and our purpose by getting us to believe or embrace a half-truth or a flat-out lie, that begins a downward spiral in our life. And we become stuck spiritually. And it gets more and more complicated because the moment we choose to accept a half-truth as if it's truth or believe a lie as if it's true, it inherently and immediately moves us into embracing what I call the Ds. And I'll put these up on the screen so you can see these. But the Ds are doubt, discouragement, despair, deception, delay, distraction, defeat. These are all tools of the enemy. They are not tools of God. God does not use the Ds to move his people in obedience and towards holiness. The enemy uses Ds. God has much different tools. But if the enemy can get us to believe a half-truth or a lie, then we embrace a D. And the moment that we embrace a D, it leads us into one of three locations. We end up in a place of isolation a place of fear, or a place of victim mentality. The moment we embrace a D of doubt or discouragement or despair, we will end up in one of three places. Isolation. This is not solitude. Solitude is where we intentionally pull away with God to be still and sit in stillness and hear from him. Isolation is withdraw from community. Isolation is saying no one cares, I am alone, and I'm better off alone. Isolation is not where God wants us to be. Fear over here is not holy, reverent fear, the kind of fear that Noah had. This is worry and anxiety about what might happen to us. And it positions us not to risk and not to trust. And, we're and we get stuck in that place. The other dynamic is this victim mentality. And, and I'm not talking about victimization. We've all seen or even experienced victimization, that painful, heartbreaking thing. It breaks the heart of God. It's tragic. But I'm talking about when we experience a hurt, when we experience something that didn't go well, that we actually turn our attention to a sense of entitlement, saying that we actually deserve better. We're owed something and we're entitled to something. And that's victim mentality. In the moment we embrace any D, we're positioned to end up in one of these three places, which God never intended for his people. But the enemy doesn't stop there because what his plan is actually to do is to run us in a circuit of isolation and fear and victim mentality. So that if I'm alone, I'm afraid of what might happen to me. Or because I've experienced something hurtful or awful, I'm afraid it's going to happen again, so I pull back and isolate myself. His playbook and plan is to keep us in this pattern as he continues to hit us with these and half-truths and lies. Because what he's trying to do is ultimately move us in a downward spiral. And he has a destination. See, the, the Bible tells us that Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It's beautiful. But right in connection to those words of Jesus, Jesus also said that the thief 
seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, the thief is Satan, and he first seeks to steal truth through a a half-truth or a flat-out lie. And when he can steal that truth in our dynamic, we are ultimately then positioned to spiral down. Now, I want to be really clear. We're not talking about demon possession in this conversation. That is a very real but different thing. We're talking about how the enemy seeks to mess with the people of God as they seek to follow God. Those who want to follow Jesus. He has, he has no control over believers. He has no, he has no mind control. He doesn't even know our thoughts. We can offer that stuff up, but he doesn't inherently have it. What he has is an ability to predict human behavior. He's really good at it. And what he gets us to do is to embrace a lie. And why the reason most people don't live into the fullness of life is because they believed a lie somewhere. That gets them where he steals the truth. They get into this spiral, and it ultimately plays out in the kill or destroy reality. Because as long as you and I stay in this cycle, at some point we will get in this journey where we will consider killing ourselves. It's suicide. If we stay in this cycle, we spin down through isolation, fear, and victim mentality, at some point we can get to the place where we're willing to consider taking our own life. Now this is how the enemy works, because here's the deal. Again, he doesn't care about you at all. He can give a rip about you. He hates God. He wants to hurt the heart of God. And since he can't, destroy the creator. His next best best option is to get the creation to destroy the image of the creator in itself. And anybody who has ever ended up here considering suicide, and many of us have, I have been here before. Anytime we've been there, if you're willing to backtrack and look, you'll get to the point where somewhere along the way a truth was forfeited that led to that making sense. And this always feels justified. I'm isolating myself because it's strong. I'm I'm alone. I'm strong and I'm, I'm alone and I'm strong in it. Or you know what, that hurt, I shouldn't be treated that way, so it's okay that I feel this way. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just realizing that there's potential of something to go wrong, so I'm just being prudent and embracing the concept of potential fear of something. But the lie that keeps us stuck there will lead us down to the point where we will consider taking our own life. If he can't get us to do that, then his next best step and his next play is to move towards destroying others. And this is where we blame other people. This is where we indict other people. This is where we remove ourselves from community. This is why often there's so much sheep shifting happening in the church. Because the enemy's ultimate strategy is to position us where we indict the very thing that keeps us calibrated to who we are and what we do. It's truth and love. We get to the point where we we condemn that and indict that and we move ourselves out of it. So here's how this connects back to what I see in our body and in our journey right now. As I see a growing spirit of offense. And it's flashpointing right here. To live in a posture of offense is not Christ-like. Jesus was very intentional about when you have an offense, what to do with that. Matthew 18. And the reality is offense is often marked by a lack of grace, a lack of love, and 99.9% of the time, a lack of truth. So when Jesus said, look, if you, if, if, if you have an offense, your brother's offended you, you need to go to that person one-on-one and have the conversation. If that doesn't work, you get somebody else and you go back. And there's a sequence and a process because what he's ultimately asking us to do is have the courage and humility to walk back up the path and find out where we lost truth, where identity and purpose was lost, and why community is broken. And if we find ourselves in a place where community is challenged, and I say community can be the church, community can be marriage, family, relationships, this pattern is a destroyer of all of that. 
marriages, families, relationships, the church, if you find yourself in a place of offense, have the courage and humility to fight for truth and work your way back up. Ultimately, we can say, you know what, if we're in the spiral, I'm done. I'm just going to hold right here, and I'm not going to go any further. There is a, an ability to hold in the spiral, but it's only short-lived. By willpower, we can hold in a spot. But the only way out is through truth. With, without truth, there is no way out. The, the reason we got into it was the lack of truth. And, and we know from Scripture that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Word of God is truth. Therefore, holding to what is true not only allows us to get out of this, but it, it keeps us from falling into it in the first place. And community, where, we're, where we speak the truth in love, where we relate to another, this is where we hold the truth in love and our identity and our purpose continues to remain clear and true so we can agree with God, walk with God, love and act out of it. It's truth. It's the word. I, isolation. God, Hebrews 13. God has said he'd never leave us or forsake us. Hebrews 13. In 2 Timothy 1.7, you've not been given a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and self-control. And this idea that we uh, can maintain a victim mentality and be entitled to something. Look, we're, read Romans 8. We're more than conquerors in him. More than conquerors. Listen, I, I share this with you not to indict. I share this with you to invite. To invite you to fight for truth to invite you to have the courage and the humility to, to walk back out this cycle and to live in the context of community in your marriage, in the context of community in your family life, in the context of the church. Truth and love are maintained in community and our identity and our purpose are preserved. Outside of that, we drift and we fall prey to the way this thing works out. And, and this isn't a once and done, I figured it out, I know what, I move on. I, I personally have to go back to this all the time. Because the enemy is relentless in coming after us. We would be foolish to think that we as a church could talk about bold moves. We could talk about transforming our cities, talking about hundreds and thousands of people coming to Jesus. We would be foolish to think that to say that, then the enemy is just going to sit back and let it happen. That he isn't going to start to mess with us. Because the reality is, he will, and he is. And I got to tell you, the spiritual battle that's happening around the, our pursuit of obedience with God, demonstrating our faith and obedience, it's intense. I haven't seen it this intense since I've been here in the Quad Cities. It's intense. And it makes tons of sense. Because what God is calling us to do is big. It has a ripple for generations and decade, decades to come that will impact hundreds and thousands of people. So the enemy is messing. And for me... I'll just, I'll be honest with you. For me, when I live in the context of community and, and I'm putting myself out there and my heart out there, when something goes wrong, I get hurt in that. My immediate inclination as an introvert is to get doubt, doubt or discouragement and run right over here to isolation. Saying, whoa, 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 I'm not putting myself out there anymore because I don't deserve that. <laughs> and I'm afraid it's going to happen again and I don't want to feel that again, so I'm going to pull myself further away. It's, it's a natural thing to do, but it's ultimately rooted in a lie where I'm supposed to always love and trust and risk. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Uh, listen, you've, you've been here in some way, whether you recognize it or not. The enemy's tried to mess with you in this. And there are marriages that are in, in turmoil. There, there are families, families in conflict. And there are even church dynamics that have, marked, have the mark of offense because we have forfeited truth along the way. And my heartbeat is, as we chase the things of God, if we don't hold to truth, and the truth is what sets us free, if we don't hold the truth, we're going to get mired in this complexity and not be able to live by faith and obedience. 
So hear my heart. I share all this to invite, not to indict. My love for you, my love for him, compels me to have this conversation. And just preparing to have the conversation increased the battle around me personally. I have seen this in my personal life. I've seen it in my family. I see it in the relationships next to me, and I see it in the ministry team. There's pockets all over the place where the enemy is trying to win. But he has nothing but what we give him. He is a defeated foe. We serve a risen Lord. He is already victorious. So the enemy is fighting for scraps. But this is how he does it. And I want to invite you to fight for truth in it. It matters. There is a kingdom thing happening around us as a church family that's much bigger. It is not yet seen. It's coming. But we've got to hold the truth in it. And we've got to be willing to agree with God, walk with God, love with God, and act. And when we drift from community, we're not in position to do any of that. All right. Let's see if I can pull this back to Noah and we do some wrap-up. Uh, in fact, let me just do this. I'm going to give you a couple fill-ins just so you have them. And uh, those of you who would be bothered not having them, you'll feel better. Faith, not circumstances, decides our destiny. Faith, not circumstances, decides our destiny. You have faith or you don't have faith, it's going to decide your destiny. It matters. When you get to the so what, there's a follow-on question is where does your faith need to be made real? Where does your faith need to be made real? Where do you need to demonstrate that faith? Where do you need to live it out in action? Noah did that in the process of building an ark. He lived in radical obedience by faith. He lived in the unseen. And again, Noah's faith was great, not because he built the ark, but because he believed God for what he said. That's what made Noah's faith great. And he was an all-in. Like, he was either going to be the crazy fool or the, or the faithful servant. He, he had put all of his resources, his time, his energy, his social capital, relational capital, he put it all out in that space. He was, it was either going to work out or not, but he did it in, in direct obedience. He risked beyond recovery. There was no going back for Noah, but he risked beyond recovery, never going beyond God's cover. That's why when Genesis talks about it, he did everything God asked him to do. He, he, he did all the Lord commanded him to do. He never went beyond the cover that God provided. And when you and I think about this battle, the way we stand and after everything stand. And I just want to jump for a moment to Ephesians 6, verse 13. Ephesians 6, verse 13, it's the very next part of the passage. It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, when that stuff starts to happen in your life, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. We do not have to fall to that. We can stand in the complexity of this world with seen and unseen, physical and spiritual, what is and what is not yet. We can stand, but we do it in his mighty power in the full armor of God, holding on to truth. That's how we begin to walk as giants of the faith, in all the complexity. So let me give you three things that I see that giants do or don't do. Because giants, there's some things giants do and there's some things giants of faith don't do. One of the things they don't do is they don't wait to build. They don't wait to build. Noah didn't wait to build. He, 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 he leaned into it. The, the reality is that delayed obedience is disobedience. We can count the cost, but we shouldn't wait to build. We need to lean into what God asks us to do. And if God has asked you to do something, do it. Don't wait to step and don't wait to build. Giants of the faith don't wait to build. They also don't wait for rain. They don't wait for rain. Rain in some way could feel like proof. It's evidence, va validation. But listen, they don't wait for rain. We, we step in obedience without the proof of the rain. We step in obedience by faith. If we're waiting for the rain, one, that's no longer faith. To wait until it comes, that's not faith. And two, it's too late. If Noah had waited for the rain to start building the ark, it would have been too late. 
We need to be in a place where we risk beyond recovery. Noah did that. He knew his job was to build an ark. He also knew it was God's job to bring the rain. So he focused on his task and by faith and obedience did it. We don't wait for rain and we don't wait to build. But there is one thing that we do as giants. We grab hammers. We grab hammers, not umbrellas. We grab hammers. Now listen, what I mean by that is when God says to do something and he says, here's the next, we should live into that expectantly. We should live into that engaging, not passive. We should be active participants in what God's seeking to do. So we grab hammers and not umbrellas. In Noah's moment, if if umbrellas had actually been invented, and they haven't, but if they had, somebody grabbing an umbrella at what God said was all about their own comfort. And it would protect them from the ensuing rain that would come for a period of time, but it would not solve the problem, would it? It would not protect them from the flood. It would not protect them in it because they weren't living in obedience. Giants of the faith grab hammers. They become active participants, willing to risk to reach and sacrifice to serve so that God's purpose is accomplished. To grab an umbrella just to protect our own discomfort in the season is not going to do anything. For a moment, it'll keep us dry, but in the long run, we become irrelevant to God's purpose. So giants of the faith grab hammers and not umbrellas. But anytime we start to step in a bold move in building an ark, and I got to tell you, we, <laughs> our bold moves are ark-sized dreams. And they come with Noah-sized responsibilities. But I understand that that also comes with complexity. And I came across a quote this week that I think is fitting because they said, if you're seeking to create positive change in your community, it's almost certain that you'll be creating discomfort as well. And that's true. And there's a spiritual battle we're even raging around that as well. But the Lord has positioned us as a church to do anything and everything he asks. And as we continue to step in that, the closer we step in obedience to him, the more we say, yes, Lord, we agree with you and we walk, this thing's going to intensify. And we need to be faithful and diligent to preserve truth and love, understanding who we are and what we're supposed to do. If we're unwilling to fight for truth, we actually become complicit in this whole thing. But we're willing to to put our full trust in Jesus and hold to the word of God and to stay in the context of, of community, whether that's your marriage or whether that's your family or whatever it may be, to stay in the context of God's community where truth and love prevail. Well, now you can stand and after everything stand. You can, you can flat out reject the lie at the beginning or if you found yourself stuck in it, you can work your way back out, but it's only by truth because it's a lack of truth that gets us into this in the first place. So as we think of what's ahead and even this week, it, I wonder what God has asked you to believe him for. He asked Noah to believe him for some pretty big things. And the temptation is to wait to build and the temptation is to wait for the rain. But that's always late. And God is looking for men and women who are willing to build before the rain comes. Even willing to build if the rain never comes. Because it is in in obedience that we demonstrate our faith. Our faith is lived out in obedience. So whatever God has asked you to do, my friends, do it. And he will show up in ways that we can't even begin to imagine or describe. Let's take a moment to pray as we prepare to step back into worship together. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that even in the complexity of seen and unseen, even in the complexity of both a physical and spiritual world, where there are things that are, but there are also things not yet, I am so grateful 
for your goodness to us. I am so grateful for your patience. I am grateful that it's through Jesus that we can have relationship with you, but then that our identity then defines our purpose, and you put us in a place where we're part of a grand purpose. But Lord, I realize that enemy is relentless in hitting and attacking us and and hitting us with that cycle. And I just pray, Father, you'd give each one of us clarity to truth. You'd help us to see what is true and give us the the courage and humility to walk back in places of broken relationship where we're where community is broken and, we, and we're willing to find out where, where, is, where is truth, what is truth, and that we would fix our eyes on your son Jesus and that we would hold to the word of God, your, your words, the scriptures, so that we can stand and after everything stand. Because God, it's clear to me, you want to do an, an incredibly powerful and impactful thing in these cities. And you want to use us as a church. You want to use us as individuals. You want to use our families. So help us to be ready in that. Help us to stand and after everything stand in your mighty power for your glory, and continue to speak about what you're asking. And may we simply do what you say without waiting. I love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.